Amy and I continued this Sunday and next preaching through the Old and New Testaments together, looking at those texts and finding ways to connect them. Even though at least two of my colleagues have given me a hard time about putting these things together, let me remind you that it's not Russ that put these texts together. In 1969, the lectionary committee was put together and formed the lectionary, which puts four texts together for, for churches to use each Sunday. Two from the Hebrew text, two from the Christian Testament, two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament, and uh, many churches on every Sunday read all four of those texts. Normally we pick one of the four texts and read them. Uh, this fall we have been looking at uh, the, the text from the Old Testament and the Gospel text and looking for uh, connections there. Asking what did Jesus learn from reading those texts and how might that knowledge, how might those scriptures that he learned that he studied as a child, how might those have influenced his understanding of ministry? And so we look again today, a text from Judges, which I'm not going to read for you now because I'm going to tell you that story uh, in the midst of my words, and then Amy will bring the parable um, to bear. Most people live close to the center of the story they receive. The poets and priests and politicians offer a picture of the way things are. Those words meld together, forming a narrative, a myth, an ethos of their culture. The way it is, is the way it's always been, they say, the way it should always be. Most people stay close to the center, within the status quo of that narrative. Dom Helder Camara was the Archbishop of Brazil during turbulent years. When he fed the poor, just accepting the status quo... You know, the poor you will always have with you, Jesus said. Accepting the status quo, they called him a saint. When he began to ask dangerous questions like, why are these people poor to begin with? When he ventured from the safe center to the meddlesome margins, they called him a communist. Don't rock the boat. Don't question the way things are. Don't ask any questions. About the Middle East, don't ask why there are such tensions. Why, as former President George Bush said so many times following the attacks on 9-11, why they hate us. Don't ask the questions. Just accept the status quo. They hate our way of life. And, you know, the Arabs and the Israelis, well, they will always be at war. Just stay in the center of the story. Respond according to the rules of the status quo. They attack, we retaliate, we rebuild, and we repeat. And we repeat. And we repeat. Nothing will ever change until we change the narrative. And the narrative will not change from the center out. Jesus did not live from the comfortable center. His words stirred the masses and troubled the powers because in a long line of prophets, he spoke not from the status quo, but from the messy margins. He saw another way, turn the other cheek. He envisioned a new world where the last would be first and the first would be last. He found a different kind of power altogether. Greater love has no one than to lay down your life for your friends. Jesus' message was not status quo religion. 
He did not speak traditional cliches. He did not offer conventional wisdom from the comfortable center of his cultural ethos. Instead, Jesus spoke mostly by telling stories, by offering parables that sometimes seemed purposely cryptic, purposely confusing rather than clarifying. Jesus did not offer easy answers of religion. He invited people into the investigation of faith, the exploration of a different way to think about everything. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now you have to wonder how a boy growing up in a backwater village called Nazareth, born to peasant parents, scraping by on the meager means of simple carpentry, you have to wonder how a good Jewish kid with that kind of background could have grown up to be such a rabble rouser. And all I can figure is that when the rabbis were reading the stories of Israel, unlike most of the people around him, Jesus was actually listening. Like the day, the rabbis unrolled the scroll of Judges and began reading about Deborah. She was a prophetess. The same word used of her male counterparts, the classical prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They called her a judge, which meant an arbiter of disputes between people. But the word also was used to refer to military and political leaders. I wonder how old Jesus was when he first heard her name and when he first realized it was odd for a rabbi to extol the virtues of a woman who was a leader in ancient Israel. The center of that narrative did not accept women's roles in leadership. She was second in creation. She was responsible for the fall into temptation Women were second-class citizens. Bear the children, support the husband, provide for the family, just keep quiet. But the rabbi said Deborah was a prophet, a judge, and he read her story. It began as did all stories from this era in the life of Israel. And the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's another pattern. There was a fall from grace, and there was redemption offered, and there was a time of prosperity, and then Israel fell again, over and over and over. Lather, rinse, repeat. Judges 4 comes as the third in a series, and Deborah comes onto the scene, yet another judge to offer wisdom and correction and leadership. As I tell you this story, let me begin with a word uh, from the commentary by Fred Craddock, who reminds us that behind the story stand the traditions and the rituals of the holy war in which Yahweh is the one who defeats the enemy. Holy war. It is a disturbing tradition. I wish we could have put that tradition of holy war behind us Unfortunately, we still have preachers asking God to bless our wars, believing God still fights for us against them. As destructive as that theology is, it was the theology of ancient Israel, and we must hear it for what it was. They believed God sent affliction to punish them. 
They believed God fought to save them. They believed God was in control of everything. We can learn from this story. Their deep trust in the presence of God, even if the basic shape of that theology is misguided. Here's the story. Israel had again fallen into disfavor with God. So as the scripture says, God sells the people into the hand of an enemy king, Jabin the Canaanite. The commander of his fierce army was Sisera. And the Israelites cried out to God, the Bible says, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. The commander of the army of Israel was Barak. Speaking through the prophet Deborah, God commands Barak to go into battle with Sisera, the great king, the the, the powerful leader of the Canaanites. And the powerful Barak responds to the lady preacher, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So much for God's command. Barak is only going into battle if Deborah goes with him. So much for women, barefoot and pregnant. Deborah responds, I will surely go. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. A woman. Keep listening. Fast forward to the end of the story. The army of Israel has miraculously defeated Sisera's 900 chariots of iron, slaughtering every single soldier. It's gory. It's in the Bible. Except for the commander Sisera. So much for the captain going down with the ship. Exhausted, Sisera finds his way to the tent of a woman named Jael, who was a Kenite. Sisera asks Jael for some water, And instead of water, she gives him a glass of warm milk. And like a satisfied baby, Sisera falls right to sleep. And even though the Kenites and the Canaanites were allies, so Sisera knew he could trust Jael as he slept. It gets even gorier. You know, it's the Bible. Jael takes a tent peg, and as the Bible says it, she took a hammer and went softly to him, and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground, and he died. And there sat young Jesus in a patriarchal culture that hardly believed in a woman's identity, much less in women's leadership. Jesus, listening to the rabbi, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And not a Jewish woman. And not an Israelite woman. A foreigner. A pagan woman doing God's work. Everything about the story is outside the comfortable center of the cultural and religious mythology. In his commentary on this text, Dennis Olson says, As the people of God, we can be confident that God is at work in and through our lives, even when we may be unaware. Indeed, God may work through outsiders or those on the margin, on the margin, in ways we would never expect. 
You want to know how to change the narrative? Sit with Jesus and listen to the message from the margins. May it be so. Amen. Oh, me. This one's terrible. I just want to forewarn you. I did not write this. I'm just reading it. And when Russ says at least two of the staff wonder about him sometimes, all three of us do, trying to make all this come together. But I'm going to read this for you, but it's a doozy. Here we go. Keep in mind, this is now the third story in a row that Matthew is telling. We are approaching the time of the end of Jesus' earthly life. And now Matthew is telling a third story about this master or this owner that comes to the servants and says, I'm going to go away for a while, and when I come back, I want things to be right, okay? So just, you get it? You connect the dots? Here we go. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents. Let me just stop right there. Luke tells this story too, a little bit differently, but it's clearly the same kind of story. This is a lot. It's like 20 years worth of salary in this first gift, okay? So, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one that had two talents made two more talents. Good for them. But the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you have handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. This is where another interpretation may use the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've heard this a lot from us in this pulpit. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents who also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master replied, 
you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I would reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all those who have more, who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave... Throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ugh. You've heard the ancient story. Here we go. I spent this week thinking that Jesus has thrown us a real curveball here. This really just does not sound like Jesus. So I kept reading and I kept reading and then I read some more hoping that someone might offer a thought that could help me make some sense of this. I cannot say it ever really happened, the making sense of it part. But here's my best go at it. I can't help but wonder if Jesus used money in this story as his example about generosity and using what we have and risk management because money always gets our attention. It's just that Jesus was not consumed by money except in all the ways that he cautioned about the love of it and the greed of it. It's just hard for me to believe that what Jesus was really trying to tell us in this parable was Invest wisely so that you will have more and more. And for those of you that do not trust the system and keep your money under your mattress, you're going to be cast into outer darkness. It just doesn't sound like him. But it did get my attention. And maybe that was the, his whole desire, getting our attention. I wish I had time to fully unpack this whole text and for us to have a long conversation of give and take and what do you think and what could this have been, but I don't have time for that. So I am indebted to a preaching professor named Caroline Lewis when she said in the opening of her article about this text, to be honest, sorting out the minutia of the meaning of talents in this parable is less interesting to me homiletically than the fact that Jesus calls out our squandering of that which has been entrusted to us. She goes on to say that perhaps we should circle back to the Sermon on the Mount to remind ourselves that what you have been given is never, ever for your benefit alone, but for the sake of the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that we might actually embody the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then she asks, what have we been given? And what will we do with what we have been given? She goes on to say, and I really want to quote from her from more length than I usually quote from someone else because she says it better than I can, and I want to give credit where credit is due for making any sense of this parable. 
So when she asked, what have I been given and what am I supposed to do with what I've been given? She says, I will continue to insist that the gospel is indeed political. I will continue to persist in calling out any and all theology that it attempts to sanction discrimination. I will continue to resist so-called biblical interpretations that have so co-opted and corrupted scripture that God's intention to love, to free the oppressed, to care for the rejected, to uplift the marginalized, to regard the overlooked, to empower the powerless is overlooked at best, ignored and dismissed at worst. She says, I will continue to speak out against sexism and racism, to speak up for LGBTQIA persons and speak into those places and spaces, those systems and organizations, including the church, those moments and events where the righteousness of God is supplanted by self-righteous justification. And then she says to the preachers reading her commentary, Dear preachers, we have been given much. We have been granted a platform for doing public theology. We have been gifted with a call from a congregation that trusts us and believes in us. What we choose to do with these gifts is the very question in Jesus' parable this week. Will you sideline or sidestep your public presence and public voice? And will you admit while you are doing so? Are you afraid of rocking the proverbial boat? Afraid of not being liked? Afraid of people walking out? Afraid of hateful messages and trolling? Yes, 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 and yes. So, I've been thinking this week about the gifts that I have been given and wondering if I have invested them wisely or have I squandered them and hidden them. This past week, I noted on Thursday the three-year mark from the removal of the lower left cancerous lobe of my lungs. So between COVID and George Floyd's murder that we all watched live on TV and the subsequent protests that ensued, and then my own fearful health crisis three years ago, I will tell you that I know I have squandered some responsibilities out of pure self-preservation. When I have started to feel stirred up inside, I have shut that down because I simply could not stand the churning inside my body, believing that that kind of inner turmoil surely is a space where cancer will grow. So today's parable steps on my toes big time. And here is a perfect place for you to insert your own story about what keeps you squandering the gifts and responsibilities that you have. I'm only called to find my own spaces. I'm not called to find yours. That is your place to discern where have I not been brave and bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When one is given a voice and when one finds herself in a place of privilege, whether earned or by birth, when one holds power, it comes with great responsibility. 
I will confess that sometimes I cower away from saying the things I'd like to say, want to say, need to say for fear of ruffling feathers or hearing the dreaded critique of just being too political. If Jesus was anything, he was political. He used his voice and all the resources at his disposal to speak truth, to power, to condemn empire, to lift up those we consider lowly, to promote and advocate for the poor, to heal those that are sick, to beat into our heads and our hearts that the last will be first, the first will be last, and the greatest among you all will be the servant. These are the things that we cannot bury in the ground. We have been given 20 years worth and more of opportunities to use what we've been given for the least of these and to all the people that God calls God's beloved children, which is everybody. We cannot bury this in the ground. These are the things that we must place in high-yield investments. These are the risks for which we will finally hear the words we all long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You cared for the least of these. You included everyone. You prayed for your enemy. You risked something big for something good. You went the second mile. You gave your cloak too. You fed the hungry. You healed the sick. You welcomed the stranger. You consoled the grieving. You worked for peace and reconciliation. You called women to lead. You named that black lives matter. You used the pronouns that individuals prefer. You celebrated gay marriage and made sure that there were gender-neutral bathrooms. You sponsored those seeking refuge and asylum. These are the talents that I have given to you in abundance, Jesus said. Do not hide them. Do not squander them. Do not be afraid to use them. The world is groaning for the message of Jesus to be lived out. Do not hide. Do not squander. Do not keep silent. Do not be afraid. Do not ignore the need. Speak up. Speak out. Be courageous. Take risks. It is an unpopular way to be. This way is a way lived in the margins and it is from this marginalized place. It might be only from this marginalized place that you will ever hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. May it be so. Amen.